All right, Romans chapter eight, or 9, we are picking up um, where we left off uh, last month or a month before. Uh, for, for those of you who haven't been here, last month we took and did like a halftime of Romans. We started in the first part of the year, we went Romans 1 through 8. It took us that long to get through the first eight chapters. And then today we are going to pick up in the second half. So again, the halftime was last month, we went through another series. And so here we are in chapter 9. Um, and today we're going to begin this second half of our journey through the book of Romans, which again, written by the Apostle Paul. Now, the first half of Romans ended, if you were here for that, it ended with what many theologians call the greatest chapter in all of Scripture. It ended with what they call the Great Eight. It's Romans chapter 8. And the reason that it's known as Romans chapter 8 or as the greatest chapter in all of Scripture is that it points to and gives us a great reminder of all that God has done on the behalf of sinners like me, okay? And here's, what, here's some of the verses that are really famous that you've probably heard before if you've ever been around church very much. You've probably heard these verses. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great reminder, amen? amen. Romans 8.28, And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 31. What should we say then? What should we say to these things? If God is for us, then what? Who can be against us? We love those verses. That is a fantastic reminder that when you are facing hard days, when, when we're all going through struggles, that we can know that if God is for us, then who can be Against this, another great reminder by Paul. And then the end of Romans 8, chapter 8, 37 and 39, or through 39, it says, Knowing all these things, we are what? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he goes on and he says this, and this is beautiful. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, as we talk about celebrating the life of Joey Vassie today, neither death nor life, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, by the way, that includes you, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what a beautiful reminder that none of the things that I do, because I can tell you right now, Billy Stevens blows it every single day of his life. I don't always get it right. I rarely get it right. And, and there's these moments that when we blow it, that we do something that we feel like, God, I just made myself unlovable in your sight. It's a great reminder from the Apostle Paul that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So for these reasons, it's been known and been talked about by theologians that this is the greatest chapter in all of Scripture, which there's a lot of great chapters in the Bible. But if Romans 8 is considered by many to be the greatest chapter in the Bible, then Romans 9 might be considered the most difficult chapter in the Bible. And if you're wondering why, you'll find out here in just a few minutes. It's so difficult that, to be honest with you, many, most churches just skip Romans 9. They don't, they don't deal with it. And to be honest with you, when we started this series back in January, uh, Romans 9 was that chapter that I was like, hey, if we could just take our time and get there, because I don't want to get there, it, it, it really is a difficult passage. And, it's gonna, and the reason it's difficult is because it's going to push against some of the things that you grew up believing about God. 
And it's going to paint God, if we're not careful, it's going to paint God in a light that you never would have anticipated seeing him before. And so it's going to be tough. But here's what I want us to do as we get into this. This is kind of one of those texts that you have to be careful with. Last night, my family and I had a fish fry. My wife told our family before we sat down, now this is supposed to be boneless fillets, but be careful. There might be a bone in there. This is one of those texts that you have to be really careful with about how you understand it and about how you interpret it because there's bones in this one. And it is a difficult passage, and it's kind of, we're going to nerd out a little bit in the Bible today. It is, it is a very heady section of text because it's of the nature of it. And so I want to pray, and if you would pray with me, and pray for me, and pray for one another, that as we, as we wade down in the weeds of this text, that God would help us in this moment to understand it rightly and helpfully, and then that God would also... Um, help us to gain and extract something from it that would be helpful for us. And I really do believe there is something helpful in this for us. But it is heavy lifting, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, you are, um, you are amazing. And God, as we read through the text today, we're going to find out even more so how amazing you really are. Your word, there are a lot of flavorful, sweet-tasting, candy-esque verses in your word. There are some words that are just pleasant to read, pleasant to digest, pleasant to ponder, pleasant to think about. And then there's Romans chapter 9. God, this is a text that has been used and abused by many over the centuries. There are some tough theological and doctrinal issues that are going to arise in here that are going to challenge All of us, God, in our very thinking about how we understand you. And God, there's going to be some passages of Scripture in here that are going to really push against some of the other passages, and they're going to seem to contradict and conflict, but they don't. God, in the magnificence of your omniscience, God, you have weaved these things together in order for us to have a more confident faith in who you are and who we are in light of all that Christ has done. And so God, in the difficulties and in the areas where maybe I don't explain things well enough, I'm praying for the Holy Spirit to be the the teacher. God, in the areas where I don't fully communicate sufficiently what your word is needing to teach, again, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher. And so God, as we now step into this, Father, I pray that I would not be the expert on this, but we would lean into Paul, who is the expert, who is the one who penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These words are true. They are inerrant. They are infallible. God, they are beautiful words penned by Paul, again, to help us in our faith journey. And so, Lord, as we, again, as we step into it, we ask that you would teach us through your word, through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So again, I have done my very best to forewarn you of the difficulties in this text. And it is, uh, it is, again, there are going to be some things that we're going to read in here that are going to make us question. And by the way, Paul anticipates these questions, and so he's going to answer these for us. I first bumped into this uh, when I was in Bible college. Uh, I was in uh, a class where it was a three-hour course, so you have to be in there three hours, and mine was a night course, and so I would drive an hour and a half one way, three hours round trip, 
to a classroom in Jacksonville, Florida, and I had a, pa- uh, a professor, his name was Dr. Gregory, one of the most intelligent men that I've ever met in my life. He would walk into class, and it was New Testament survey. He would walk into class, and he had one of those little roller office chairs, and he would roll it to the center of the classroom out from behind his desk, and he would spin it around with the back to his chest, and he would sit down in it, facing that direction. And he would just sit down, and you know, we had a textbook, but we never really went through the textbook. Again, this man was a brilliant man. He was on a board of people internationally that if they ever dug up anything that had ancient Greek writing on it, he was one of the men that would interpret what that word was. And so he would come in and he would sit down and he'd turn the chair around and he would sit and he would just start talking. He would throw questions out. He would, he would throw kind of the bait out, so to speak. He would ask a question and all of us students would jump in and we would, he would lead us on a trail of we feel like we know the answer to the question. And then we would get to the end of the class. And right before he let us go, he would yank the carpet out from underneath of us. And he had led us down a trail intentionally and then confused us all and said, now go home. And so I remember there was a moment in his class. It was one of the very first classes. And he sat down and he was talking about this thing called the doctrine of election, which is what we're getting into in Romans chapter 9. And again, the doctrine of election is very difficult to fully understand. There are people, theologians, who have debated this for thousands of years who are much smarter than me, and there is no consensus on what this is truly teaching. There are, there are, many, um, there are many people who teach what is called the Arminius view, and Arminianism essentially teaches this, that man chooses God, that we come to a place in our faith where we don't understand, or we, or we come to a place in our life where we understand that we are sinners, that we recognize our sinfulness before God, and that our sinfulness has separated us from God. And so we get to a place where we see that Jesus has been crucified, and that his death on the cross opens the door for us to be able to make a decision to follow Jesus. That's the Arminianist view, and he gets up and he explains that, and then he gets up and he explains what is known as the doctrine of election. And uh, for, for, for those of you who take notes, this would also be known as the Calvinistic view or the Calvinism view. And it's basically this, that God chooses man, that man has no say-so in whether or not he comes to faith in Christ, that God predestined it from, uh, from the beginning of the ages, that God knew who would be saved and who would not, and God had planned for it. And so those who come to faith are of the, what he would call the elect, and those who do not, they're just not of the elect. And so we're going to see this today. And I remember there was this moment in Dr. Gregory's class where he explained this and he gave his position on it. And um, I I just, and and he was kind of in the the, the realm or the field or the arena, if you will, of the Calvinistic viewpoint. And I said, Dr. Gregory, I got up after class, everybody had left, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I listen, I didn't know hardly anything about the Bible and still don't know much about the Bible at that time. And so I, I wanted to ask him a question because it pushed against everything that I had ever believed about God. And so I went up to him after class was over and I said, Dr. Gregory, I said, I need to talk to you for just a second. He said, okay, what you got? And I said, I don't, I don't think I believe like you believe. I don't think I agree with what you just taught. And he said, he said, I'll tell you what, here's what I want you to do. He says, we're early in the class. We're not many weeks in, he said, I want you to listen throughout the entirety of the class. And he's, he said, then on the last night of class, he said, I want you to come up to me and I want you to follow up with me and we'll just kind of see from there. I said, okay, that's a fair point. And I did, I listened. It was, it's still probably one of my favorite classes that I've ever been in because of how great of a teacher he was. And 
I remember the last night came. I heard all of his teachings. We had taught through the New Testament, the bulk of it. And um, we came to this place and class was over, class emptied out, all the students left and I walked up to him and I said, Dr. Gregory, I said, hey, I, I appreciate your class. I enjoyed it so much. This was so good. I just love sitting under your teaching. But I have to admit that I still disagree with you. And he looked at me and it frustrated me so much. Like I was just fuming the whole ride home. He said, that's okay. You'll get it one day. And I was like, ah! <laughs> so, again, the frustration of this text you will feel. The frustration of this text we are all going to experience together. So, before we get started in Romans 9, I just want to share with you... Um, a couple things. First of all, when we look at chapter 8 and the verses that I just read, there's a, there's a lot of those yes verses. Like we read those and we go, yes, somebody needs to put that on a t-shirt, give me a coffee mug with it on it. I love those verses. And then we're going to read some verses here in chapter 9 that we're going to be like, wait, what? Those, those two chapters don't even look like they, should, they were written by the same person. They, those two chapters don't go together. Those two chapters don't make sense. They seem to be very contradictory. But in the middle of all these challenging verses is a beautiful reminder. And as a matter of fact, it really points, it's the main point of this whole chapter we'll get to, and I hope we can all see it. So before we start wading through this chapter, a little context. Paul had taught that Christian faith was not some new way of being made right with God um, and was not in any way in opposition to the teachings of the Old Testament. If you rewind all the way back to Romans chapter 4, Paul would make the argument that Abraham himself was justified by faith and not by works. And that kind of faith required for salvation is the same kind of faith that is required for salvation today and even in Paul's day. And that's the argument he's been making. That this whole thing of being saved by faith has always been the position. It's always been the position. It's never been about obedience to the law. It's never been about sacrifices. It's always been about faith. And so there were some apparent issues with his teaching. Uh, first of all, the Old Testament is all about God's covenant with his people. Old Testament means old covenant. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the story of God's covenant relationship with a group of people that did start with the promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I, if you follow me, if you come by faith, if you do what I do, if you go where I go, Abraham, here's what will happen. I will make you a great nation. And I'll bless those who bless you. And I'll curse those who curse you. And I'll cast out all your enemies before you. I will be for you. You will be my people and I will be your God. And this is the promise that Abraham has made. So the Old Testament covenant is all about his people, the Jews. And then why, if that's the case, then why is it then? So here's the issue. This is one of the issues. Okay, Paul, if, if the Old Testament was all about God's covenant relationship with his people, then why is it in the New Testament we see Gentiles coming by the droves to faith in Christ while the people of Israel, God's people, the Jewish people, are not? That's an issue. Because God made a promise to his people. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Then why are God's people not the ones coming to faith in the New Testament by and large, why is it that the people, particularly in the Gospels, we see are the ones, the Jewish people are the ones who pushed and fought against God's plan and crucified Jesus? The second problem with Paul's teachings earlier in Romans, the issues that come up, is if God promised to bless the nation of Israel, but again, much of the nation is missing out on that blessing, is God's integrity in question? 
If God made promises and it, it appears that God is somehow not following through on his promises, does, is, is God's integrity in question? And, and furthermore, is his word, the integrity of his word, is it in question? How can we trust what he says? If he said, this is what I will do, this is who you will be, and then it's not happening, we don't see it playing out in the pages of the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, if that's not happening, then is God's word unfaithful? We've, one of the things you've heard me say here before is that God is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. But then we look and there's just some things we go, well, wait a minute, why are, why are the Gentiles coming to faith by the thousands at a time and yet the Jewish people are the ones who are resisting? And then that brings us to a third issue. Again, the word of God, is it trustworthy? This is perhaps the struggle that many of us have dealt with in, in our faith journey. We go to church, we hear God's word taught. We sit at home, we read the Bible, we read verses, we digest these verses, we see these verses, we see what God's promises are, and then yet many of us walk through life and we go, God, I don't feel like your promises have been true in my life. God, I, I have worshipped you, I have trusted you, I have tithed, I have been to Sunday school, I have served, I have, and we fill in the blank with all these I have things, and then we say, God, I just don't feel like you've come through for me. That God, I have been obedient. And God, you, where, where are you? you many of you know, um, years ago, my friend Buddy Nobles passed away from cancer at the young age of, I think, 51 is how old he was. And, and, and Buddy, for those of you who knew him, Buddy was a stand-up Christian man. He was a phenomenal high school football coach. He invested in young men, and he didn't just invest in young men from football. Buddy invested in them the gospel. Buddy was always one to take a stand, and he would teach kids about Jesus, and he would get in the locker room, and he would lead them to faith in Christ. Buddy was a guy who always said, if, the, if I ever get in trouble for praying, in, in a public school football facility, if I ever get in trouble for praying on a football field, if I ever get in trouble for preaching the gospel to young men and the public school fires me, he always said, I'll go get a job at a private school. We'll come back and beat all the public schools. And so Buddy was just so firm in his faith. And, and so here, you know, several years ago, Buddy gets stomach cancer and, and it's terminal. And there's all those questions of God. Even I question God, like, Buddy, like you're going to take him out? That's a voice for you. God, he, he has done all these amazing things for you. And God, if you could... And, and there's these times that we just bump up against Scripture where we feel like, God, we've done our part and we've, we've leaned into the things that you've asked us to do. And God, sometimes we just don't feel like your promises are coming through for us. This is the tension that Paul is going to address. Paul's going to address this and in, in, in even more so in chapters 9 through 11. So this is the backdrop. Let's look at Romans chapter 9. We're going to read 1 through 5, and then we'll talk for a second, and then we'll finish out. So here's what Paul says <clears throat> on the heels of chapter 8, with all of this as context. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul was a Jew himself. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So there's two things to note here in this section, real quick, is before we move on. 
One is uh, Israel's unbelief was not, how, not somehow the result of God's unfaithfulness. It was in spite of God's overwhelming faithfulness. Paul points out seven ways in this text that God had been unbelievably faithful to his promises to the people of Israel. Let me give them to you. Number one, they could claim national adoption. He says that uh, right there. He says they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption. Number two, they were eyewitnesses of the revelation of God's glory, the Shekinah glory in the wilderness. And as such, they saw the splendor of the theophanies in the Old Testament. They saw the splendor of God in the glory cloud as, as God would lead them throughout their journey. And so they saw these things. And so Paul is pointing out here that God has not been unfaithful. God has done everything that he can to reveal himself. The third thing that he says is they were the beneficiaries of a divine covenant made by God with his people. They were the beneficiaries of that. Yes, God made a promise and a covenant with them. Number four, they were the recipients and custodians that, of the law of God that was given to them on Mount Sinai. Number five, they had the privilege of temple service for the prescriptions of divine worship. You see that when it says um, that they, the worship in verse four. They also were the recipients of many, of many of the promises of God, many of which were yet and future, many of which are still to come. And then number seven, they had a lineage that any nation could be proud of. Their forefathers were the patriarchs, and they were the nation through whom the Messiah came. We understand this. We are getting ready to celebrate Independence Day this coming Tuesday. And we're, most of us, most people, I think, today are still proud, as the song would say, to be an American. And it's not that America is perfect, but the idea of America is beautiful, it's the reason that so many people defended this nation. It's, so many, it's the reason that so many men and women have laid down their life in service for their country. And so in the same way, Paul is saying that the people of Israel had a lineage that they should be proud of, that their forefathers, again, were the patriarchs. They're the ones that everybody spoke of from the Old Testament. So Paul gives seven reasons. Israel's unbelief is not the unfaithfulness of God. It's in spite of God's faithfulness. The second thing to note in this section is Paul's overwhelming desire to see his kinsmen, to see his nation, to see his people saved. It says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his people. So it leads me to this point. When we read a verse like that, when we hear Paul say that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his people who are lost, that he wishes that he could trade his salvation for theirs, that he would be willing to go to hell, that he would be willing to give up what God has done for him if they would come to faith in Christ. It makes me wonder, where are we at as a church today when, in regards to the lost? Do we have great sorrow and unceasing anguish over the lost? Because here's the thing, and this is what happens in every church, and we have to be careful of this. The gravitational pull of every church is to become a church for church people. The gravitational pull is instead of being great commission-focused, where we're focused on people who aren't in Christ, where we're focused on people who aren't in here. See, we know where we're going. If you are in Christ, then you know and you have confidence in your salvation. But there is a world of people out there who do not know Jesus 
And we're content having services and just having church and going to more Bible studies and filling our head with more knowledge while not doing anything in our efforts to reach the lost. And Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, and I pray that God would give us a heart that is full of sorrow and unceasing anguish for the people in our community who are lost and separated from God. Romans 9, 6 through 13. And this is the most beautiful verse to me in all of Romans. Because remember, there's questions. Paul's anticipating these questions of, wait, 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 wait. Or, it seems as though God has failed. It seems as though God has, God's promises have not come through. It seems as though God is being unfaithful to the very things that he has promised. Why are so many Jewish people not receiving Christ? Why are they not coming to faith And Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. You need to remember that on the days when you feel what you feel and what you know don't align. On the days when you go, hey God, this is what your word says, but this is how I feel. We need to make sure that our emotions are not controlling what our head knows to be true. We need to allow our minds to Teach our heart what God's word says is true. That is why Paul would have to say, you will be transformed not by the renewing of your heart. He said the renewing of your mind. Our heart feels. Our heart feels. Emotions are strong, but emotions are fickle. It is why the scriptures teach us that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? We need to lead We need to let our minds, what God's word teaches, lead our hearts. God, I don't feel this, but I believe it's true. Even though I don't feel it, I know you're working. Even though I don't feel it, I know you're going to come through. Even though I don't feel it, your promises, they are always, always, always true. So Paul would say, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring, but... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. This is referencing back to the Old Testament. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that's a hard section of verses. And it's difficult because it, it, it presses against Well, God is love. How can a loving God reject someone before they were ever born or before they'd ever done anything good or bad? How could God say, I love that one and I hate that one? How can God do that? Now, we need to understand, again, I think I referenced this last week in a a verse that we studied. The word hate here does not mean hate like you and I would think. It is a comparative statement. It means to love less. In other words, before they had done anything good or bad, Jacob I loved, Esau I loved less. Now, there are some objections to that, and I know you feel them because I feel them. 
And it began, we begin to question the character of God. How could either Paul miswrote, and if we open ourselves up to that, then we have a whole issue with the rest of the Bible. Because we believe that Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, therefore it is inerrant. So then if that is true, if that is true, then it opens us up to other questions. Well, what kind of God is he? What, is he fair? Is he just? Is he kind? Is he compassionate? What, what kind of God would do something like that? It doesn't sound like the kind of God that we grew up in Sunday school learning about. Well, for those who may be getting to question God's integrity and faithfulness of his word, Paul makes a defense. And Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. But wait, how can, how can Paul make that claim? Paul is going to take the Jewish history. See, the Jews had placed confidence on their national election. That we are a nation chosen by God. So therefore, anyone who is in the Jewish descendants, physical descendants, all of us under the Jewish nation, we are chosen by God. And Paul is going to take, and again, this is something that the Jews always had as a comforter for them in the Old Testament. And Paul is now going to take that belief and he's going to press it down, not from a nationalistic view, but to an individual view. So he points out to the Jewish reader that it, is, it was not Ishmael, but it was Isaac that God chose. If blessing was guaranteed by physical relationship to Abraham, then many Gentiles would have had the same claim as did the Jews, for Abraham was more, of the father, was more than just the father of Isaac. He also had a son named Ishmael. Another example he uses, he follows that up. He follows the Isaac and Ishmael up with Jacob and Esau, which we just saw. And if the first example were not sufficient, this is even more sufficient because if you could find a hole in the argument with Isaac and Ishmael, Paul goes, hey, I got one better for you. We're going to talk about Jacob and Esau. By the way, Jacob and Esau were conceived at the same time. They were twins. They were born of the same father and mother. And so what Paul is doing is he uses Jacob and Esau and he confirms that the blessing of God does not belong to men purely off the basis of origin. God's choice was apart from the custom tradition, for tradition would have granted supremacy to the firstborn. Esau was the oldest. And if you, if you know anything, it's not based on works either, because what did Jacob do? So Jacob wasn't even the firstborn, which the nation of, you know, people who were of the Jewish descent would say, hey, the, the guy that's the oldest, the oldest son gets the majority of the inheritance, he, and he gets the father's blessing when the father passes on. But it wasn't. It was Jacob. And, if, it, and it's not by works because Jacob, if you know anything about the story, what did, how did Jacob get the blessing from his father? He deceived him. He went to his father and his father had poor eyesight and so he puts a little bit of hair, goat hair on his skin so that he would feel more hairy that as he went to his father, his father would believe that it was Esau and give him the blessing and that's how he got it. It means, his name literally means deceiver, jokester. And so it confirms that it was not by supremacy, it was not by works. The basis of the choice of Jacob over Esau was what Paul says here, God's election. Israel's unbelief was not a failure of the word of God. 
And this is what Paul's trying to push home. It's not as though the word of God has failed, but it is an outworking of the will of God. God has a plan, and that should comfort us. Sometimes I feel like when we read these passages like this, we get down in the weeds and we begin to question God's character, and it's like, no, 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 no. God's character is good. God's character is true. God's character is pure. We should rejoice in the fact that we are of the elect. If you are born again, then God has chosen you. He picked you to be on his team. It should not make you angry. Because again, it, it's one of these interesting things in the church world that we, we kind of knew it all along, but we just never put terminology to it because we always say that God is omniscient. Well, what does that mean? God is all-knowing. Well, if he's all-knowing, then does he know who's going to get saved? Of course he does. Does he know who's going to reject him? Of course he does. At what point did he know that? Did he wake up one day and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe Billy Stevens got saved. Hey, let's have a party today. Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let's get in the huddle. Let's just pray and thank God for Billy coming. No, he knew it from the foundations of the world. He knew. He knew how Jacob and Esau was going to work out. He knew how Ishmael and Isaac were going to work out. And he knew that he had a plan to rescue all from the work of sin, that he knew that Jesus was going to come. By the way, if we don't believe, and you believe it, if you don't believe that God's the one who does the saving work in everybody's life, then why do we pray for the salvation of people? If it's up to the individual, then we should just say, hey, I just need to go tell them. But we always put on our prayer list, hey, would you pray for my friend? I, they need to know Christ. I need you to pray for them that they would come to faith. We pray because we know that God is the one who does the work of the saving in the work of somebody's heart and in their life. And then he defends his position in the next section. Let's look at this and we'll wrap up. In chapter 9, verse 14, it says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, had en has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now, you notice in these passages, there's really kind of two arguments. The first argument is, well, that's not fair. Paul would say it this way, what, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Saying it isn't fair is an argument rooted in injustice, that we would somehow think that there is injustice on God's part. Injustice is an argument that says people deserve to get what is rightfully theirs. That's justice. We should get what's rightfully ours. We want, anytime we see people get harmed, they go to a court, they, they go through a legal system in order to get what is rightfully theirs. That's justice. The question that we have to ask ourselves then is what is rightfully ours? What is rightfully ours according to Romans 3.23 is it says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now if we have all sinned and we have all fallen short, 
then what do we do? Well, in Romans 6.23, Paul would say the wages of sin, what we have earned for what we worked for, the wages of sin is death. We deserve eternal separation from God. We deserve eternal damnation in hell. We deserve to be separated and judged for the works that we have earned. That's what we deserve. And so Paul is going, is there any injustice on God's part? No, no, no. This has nothing to do with justice. What he's trying to get us to focus on is it's not about the, this, none of this is about the justice of God. It's about the mercy of God. This is all about God's undeserved, unmerited favor, which we call grace. I don't want what I deserve. The doctrine of election is not a doctrine of justice. It is a doctrine of mercy. And here's why. Number one, the doctrine of election. So in the camp of God chooses, there, there are so many questions that I have on both sides of that theological argument. I am comforted to believe that whosoever will come, will come. That God so loved the world that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. I'm comforted that anybody, and I think we see, if, uh, Peter writes this in one of his epistles, that God is not slow in keeping his promise. He is not willing that any should perish but that all would come to repentance. I'm comforted by that. But there are, all, there are also some things that are difficult to grasp if you don't at least go, there could possibly be some truth to this whole doctrine of election thing. For instance, what sends a person to hell? What sends a person to hell? Sin. Well, at what point are we sinful? We are sinful from the moment we are born. Scripture teaches us that. Okay, so if sin sends someone, sin, send someone to hell, and we are born sinful, well, what saves a person? What saves a person is a profession of faith that we believe in the work of Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross to pay our sin debt and we trust that payment to be good for us so that we earn, not earn, but we inherit eternal life because of what Jesus did. We all get that and understand that. Well, can an infant come to faith in Christ? Can an infant understand his sinfulness? Can an infant make a profession of faith? Can an infant intellectually wrap his head around this doctrine of salvation? Can he? Of course not. So then what do you do? How do you handle that theological difficulty? How do we deal with that? Do we just go, oh, well, God gives him a pass. Well, then God's not just. Because justice demands a payment. And so how do we deal with that? Well, what if in God's foreknowledge, what if in God's predestination, what if in God's election, he said, you know, I know how that baby's life is going to end. I know that baby's life is not going to make it to the age of six months old. And so therefore on the cross, I'm paying for it. That helps me. That comforts me. What doesn't comfort me about the doctrine of election? Well, why do all not get to come? Why do all not get to receive salvation? Why do all not? That, there are difficulties. I'm not saying any of this is easy. I told you today before we started, this is heavy lifting, okay? But it's in the scriptures and we can't ignore it. And we have to deal with it. So, number one, the reasons why Paul would say that this is a doctrine of mercy is, number one, we are never too evil. That's comforting. Because I know it's in my heart at times. And we are never too evil because of God's saving power through his election that we are never too evil to escape the grace of God. 
The second reason that Paul gives us that we should celebrate in the doctrine and that, and that this is a doctrine of mercy is that God has chosen us freely that we may not boast in ourselves, but we would boast in God. And this is good news because think about where you find the greatest joy. What is it that fills your heart? What is it that overflows your heart to the point that oftentimes tears come out of your eyes? Is it when you boast in yourself? No. It's when you boast on God. It's when you celebrate who he is. It's when you praise him with your lips. It's when you do those things. The result, our greatest joy in life comes in praising him. And because God saved us and because of God's mercy, we can do that. And we find the greatest joy in all of it. And then number three, the third reason that he gives us is that it's good news to know that the root of our salvation goes down forever and ever and ever into eternity past. It never gets to a point where it's contingent or fragile and dependent on our unforeseen faith or our unforeseen or foreseen good works. So those are reasons that this is a doctrine of mercy. It's not a doctrine just of justice. And then number two, the second thing that we could... So first one was, this isn't fair. That we would read this and go, this isn't fair. The second thing is, that we would point at and look at this, and Paul addresses this later in chapters 10 through 11, is that it's not my fault. I mean, look at what he says in verses 18 through 23. I will have mercy. He said to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will, this is verse 16, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, if that's the case, then how's that my fault? None of this should be my fault. This section reminds me, and I, again, we'll get to some of these questions that raises because Paul addresses them in 10 and 11. But it reminds me of if you've ever read the book of Job, you guys been there before? And remember, Job kind of goes through the whole book and there's a lot of just questioning of God and who he is and his righteousness and his justice and his goodness and his mercy. And then you get to the end of it and Job is called on the carpet by God and God asks questions like, where were you, Job, when I placed the heavens? What part of creation did you have? What did you contribute, Job, to all of my works? What did you contribute? And the answer would be none. And it's in that moment that Job puts his hand over his mouth and says, Okay, God, I'll be quiet. Romans 9, 24 through 23, and we wrap up. And then um, worship team will come and we'll close. He goes on to say, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed it says in Hosea. So he's going back to the Old Testament, quoting Hosea. He says, uh, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the day, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. 
What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The beauty of all this is that we see, what we see is Paul reinforcing. The theme verse of this whole chapter is verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Everything that God promised has come to fruition. God declared in the Old Testament when the Jews were like, we're his people, nobody else can be his people. He said that I will save for myself people who are not from here. And he has saved all people who are, you're either a Jew or a Gentile. There's the only two categories of people in God's uh, word. Jews and Gentiles. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. You're either Jewish or you're not. And most of us are probably not Jewish. But because of God's rich mercy, because of his amazing grace, because of his foresight, because of his wisdom, because of his knowledge, because of his promises, we gather here today at Osceola Baptist Church as saved people who have been extended grace, not from within the tribe of Israel, but outside of it. And that's God's unbelievable mercy to me and you. That is God's unbelievable grace to me and you. And in these verses, Paul spells out for us that the work and the word of God have not failed, but they have been fulfilled. 